Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy, and I am your host. And today we are going to talk about commodities. And when I say commodities, what I basically just mean is stuff. And we're going to talk about this stuff from an investment perspective and and in the context of inflation, obviously. But but what a commodity is, is essentially what commodity means is that you've got a bunch of things which are more or less indistinguishable from one another so that they can be substituted freely. So if I have one barrel of oil, it is very much like the next barrel of oil. And so they are commodities with respect to one another. And so the important thing to realize is that when you say commodities to a lot of people, the first thing everyone thinks about is gold. And gold is a commodity, um, but gold is not the only commodity. If you, if you talk about the universe of commodities, you talk about the asset class, then you have other precious metals like silver and platinum, palladium. You have agricultural products, grains and meats, you know, corn, soybeans, hogs. You've got the softs, lumber and cotton, sugar. Uh, cocoa. You have energy. We're obviously very familiar with that. Crude oil, gasoline, heating oil, natural gas. You have industrial metals, copper, tin. And then there's, of course, any number of other commodities that are less traded uh, or certainly less traded by institutional investors, say, like, you know, tallow or burlap or... Um, uh, propylene, uh, rebar, you know, things like that, which are traded on different exchanges around the world. So it's not just gold. Um, and, and, and what's sort of odd about commodities as an asset class compared to say equities is that, you know, equities, there's, there's, there is an asset class beta. That is to say that you can think about the return of a stock as being some amount, uh, some amount of the return of the stock is just the market's return. And then you have an idiosyncratic return. And that, of course, is what, what the beta of a stock is, is, is how, uh, how much does this stock vary with the stock market itself? And, and so, all stocks are pretty well correlated with one another. I mean, obviously, there's some that are less correlated, but but in a bull market, all stocks go up. Just some of them don't go up as much. In a bear market, almost all stocks go down. Just some of them don't go down as much. Commodities are very different in that the correlation between the different components, the correlation between corn and oil, there's no natural reason that that should be positive. There is no fundamental market return for commodities. Um, we'll talk a little bit later about sort of the sources of return to commodity indices, but that's sort of one important and, and interesting thing, useful thing to know about commodities. And it's one reason that I uh, tell people that they shouldn't invest in a commodity like gold by itself, but in a collection of commodities. Because, because unlike with stocks where you have to own a number of stocks before you get enough diversification, you don't have to own a lot of commodities to get a fair amount of diversification. 
Um, and so you can actually have a, a commodity index with a fairly small number of carefully chosen commodities, and it can be a fairly well uh, diversified index, at least in the sense that there is no asset class-wide risk factor that you have to worry about. Now, we're going to talk about investing in commodities, and, and one of the things that you have to sort of realize is that you don't actually invest in commodities uh, by buying commodities. You don't go buy a thousand barrels of oil. You don't go buy 5,000 bushels of corn, you know, unless you're Steve Martin. I bought cardboard when it was 14 cents a ton. <laughs> and it's up to 16 cents now. <laughs> and I bought three tons of it, so let's see. Well, you figure it out. Okay, so that's one of my favorite Steve Martin bits, or my, my favorite short Steve Martin bits. Um, but the, 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 the upshot of this is that, no, you invest in commodities through futures or through a mutual fund or an ETF uh, that itself invests in futures. Uh, it is fairly unusual, certainly for, for retail investors and, and smaller institutional investors to actually go in and seek to own physical commodities. Um, there certainly are people who do that. There are hedge funds that do that. There are institutional commodity funds and commodity traders who do that and make a lot of money doing it. Uh, but that's not the way most people go and invest in commodities. So you, you buy a futures contract. So for example, right now you could buy a May wheat contract for 761 and a half cents a bushel and you can buy 5,000 bushels. That's one contract's worth. So about $38,000 for the whole contract. And what you're doing when you buy that futures contract for, for May is you are buying, you are committing to buy 5,000 bushels of wheat uh, sometime in May. Essentially, the, the wheat would be delivered to you sometime in May at the uh, at the option of the seller of the contract. And you don't actually know who that seller is because it all goes through the exchange and all gets offset. Uh, but if you are still holding that contract, when the end of April rolls around, you could get a call saying, where do you want, where do you want your wheat? I've got 5,000 bushels of wheat and you are going to be delivered. And then if you are a futures player who is in it simply to get exposure to wheat, you just got exposure in a way that you don't really want. But I digress. The exchanges are really important players in this. You know, the, the, the exchanges are the ones who, exchanges are the ones who set the contract terms, who determine what can be delivered against the contract, what is known as the contract grade. You know, if I, uh, if I, have a wheat contract, we have to know what what uh, does the wheat look like? What quality of wheat has to be delivered? And, and it's important because in order to make sure that the futures end up behaving um, and end up converging 
on the actual spot price of wheat on that delivery day, we have to have a mechanism where some people can deliver wheat against that contract. Um, if they can't, then the actual convergence to the actual commodity is not assured. And so it, it's important that there are people out there, there are institutions out there who, if the futures contract is not fully converging to the actual spot price of the commodity, will take advantage of that. So for example, um, if the if the wheat contract, uh, which is now at $762, uh, 762 cents a bushel, uh, went to 800 uh, at at expiry, and an actual wheat was out there trading at the time. You could actually buy wheat for 700 cents a bushel. Uh, then an arbitrageur could buy the actual wheat at 700 cents a bushel and sell the futures contract and deliver it to somebody who has promised to pay him 800 cents a bushel and make a quick 100 cents a bushel profit. And it doesn't take too much of that happening before that futures price comes down to where the spot price is. So that's a very important mechanism. Uh, and it's important to understand that in order for the futures market to be a viable way to invest in commodities, you have to have that sort of mechanism happening. Now, there are contracts which are cash settled. And my, my purpose today is not to go into all the complexities of futures and all the different ways that we can assure uh, or encourage convergence. But suffice to say that convergence is a very important part of uh, of how a futures contract works. It, if, it do, if you don't get convergence, the futures contract is not very useful for either the buyer or the seller. Another thing I would like to say about futures while we're on the topic is that from time to time, especially times like now when commodities prices are very high, there gets to be um, a lot of discussion about whether or not the speculation in the futures markets uh, are pushing up commodities prices. And it's important to understand that that can't really happen. That for every buyer of a futures contract, there's a seller of the futures contract. And the vast majority of those guys all offset their contracts before expiration. And if they don't, if a buyer of a futures contract takes delivery, well, it's not speculation. That is an actual buyer of the commodity. And so it's not, it's not made up demand. That's real demand in that case. But everybody who's buying futures contracts and you see massive open interest in futures contracts, that's not creating any demand for the actual commodity. Uh, and, and so, you know, it, it, when you get circumstances like this, especially in agricultural products and food prices are very high, uh, you know, everyone wants to blame somebody and it's very popular and very easy to blame all the speculators in the futures markets. And just so you don't think that this is something that happens you know, every 30 years and it's really rare and I'm just belly aching uh, because I occasionally trade futures, um, it actually happened in December 
uh, India to what I suspect will be its its future shame for many, many years. Um, India's main market regulator uh, ordered a year-long suspension of futures trading in, um, in, in a number of key farm commodities. So commodity exchanges aren't allowed to launch any futures contracts of soybean or soy oil or uh, chickpea or wheat or mustard uh, for a year. So, you know, we're going to we're going to stamp out these high prices by not letting people trade futures. There's all kinds of reasons that that actually will could tend to make futures price uh, actual spot prices go even higher. But but uh, again, it's not my my purpose in this um, in this. Uh, podcast to talk about all these weird intricacies. But it isn't an unusual thing for people to go after futures traders. The important thing to realize is that futures trading does not create or destroy any demand. Futures markets create an opportunity for a producer of a commodity to hedge their production price at a forward price. It gives an opportunity for a consumer of a particular commodity to hedge their purchase price, and it gives an opportunity to the investor to participate in the movement of commodities over time. Now, an important thing about the way futures trading actually happens is that you don't actually have to put up the full value of the contract, which is happening in the future, uh, when you actually commit to buying that contract. So, for example, going back to our example of May Wheat, I said the contract of five, for 5,000 bushels is worth about $38,000 right now. So if you decide to buy May wheat, you don't have to put up $38,000. You go to your futures commission merchant and you put up around $2,000. And so roughly 5% of the value of, of that contract. Um, in some cases, that can be less than 5%. In some cases, it can be as much as 20, 25, or even higher for very volatile or less liquid contracts. But the bottom line is you're not putting up the full value of the commodities that you are controlling, if you will. I mean, this is one of the reasons that people think about commodities and as an asset class and think about commodities as being very, very risky. If you can put up $2,000 and control $38,000 worth of wheat, so you, you know, levered it 19 to one, well, sure, then that can be very, very risky. If you have $2,000 in risk capital, uh, it doesn't take a big movement of wheat to wipe you out. But that's not the commodities, that's not the, the fault of the commodities futures. If you lever Apple 19 to 1, you will also run into trouble very, very quickly. And so it's just that futures give you the opportunity to be stupid does not mean that you have to be stupid. And so in when you buy a commodity index, uh, the investor instead tends to fully collateralize that particular investment. So let's suppose that um, the investor had a million dollars and wants to buy a million dollars worth of commodities. And let's suppose that the margin on all these different commodities, oil and tin and and uh, lumber and all these things. Let's suppose that the average margin was about 10%. So I want to buy a million dollars worth of commodities 
and I have to put up $100,000 worth of margin through my, uh, my futures broker, and it goes to the exchange to hold. Okay, so what do I do with the other 900000 And the answer is that if you're doing this in an unlevered way, okay, in a normal, the normal way you invest in, an, in a commodity index, you take that 900000 and you put it in treasury bills. There are a couple of funds out there that will put it in tips or things like that. But you put it in something very, very safe and high quality um, and that doesn't have a lot of ancillary risk on top of the commodities. When you own a commodity index in that way, and in particular a broad commodity index where you are not levering, where you're owning a you know, million dollars worth of commodities with a million dollars of capital that you've put to work – it turns out that commodities are roughly as volatile over time as stocks are. And so the perception of commodities as being, being crazy volatile comes from this, this uh, opportunity to leverage, which it is not necessary that you take. And in fact, in most cases, if you are investing through an ETF, in most cases, you, you won't actually have that kind of leverage. So people ask me, well, Mike, you know, how much uh, of my portfolio can be in commodities? You know, they're very, very risky. And I, my answer is, well, how much are you comfortable, how much of your portfolio are you comfortable holding in equities? If the answer is 80%, then the answer for how much could you, would, should you be willing to own in a commodity index would be about 80%. They're very similar risk characteristics. Um, there are very few people who would really feel that way, who would really feel that they would put 80% in a commodity index. But that's because we've been sort of taught that, that equities are good and commodities are risky and bad. Uh, but the, the data don't actually suggest that. But the net result is if you have now invested this million dollars, you have 900000 well, really a million dollars sitting there in cash, and that's the collateral for these futures, for a million dollars worth of futures contracts, your the net result is that you get the return on that cash and you get the change in the value of those futures contracts over time. Now, I should say, by the way, that different indices, the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, the Bloomberg Commodity in, uh, Index, um, there are a number, number of different indices. Uh, we, uh, Enduring Investments has, has designed a couple of these. Um, they all have sort of different weights for different commodities. And so these indices have different characteristics um, and, and they can be sometimes quite a bit different. Um, but the return for each of these indices comes from a couple of different places. One of them, obviously, um, and the largest source of very short-term return is the actual behavior of the commodities themselves because that tends to be very volatile. Another source of return is the collateral return, which right now, of course, is zero. T-bills return approximately zero right now. And, and when I say that you get the return of the, few, of, of the commodities, what I really sort of mean there is, is what you get is you get the change in the spot commodity plus the difference between plus or minus – the difference between the performance of the futures contract versus 
the actual cash trading in the commodity. Because so, futures don't necessarily move one-to-one with the commodity until you get right up towards expiry. You could own a, if you own a, um, a barrel of oil that you have to deliver in six years, it is not going to be as volatile as a barrel of oil that you have to deliver in a month. Um, and so, and so depending on how far out that curve you, you go to own your futures, you sort of get this additional source of potential return that comes from the relationship between that futures price and, and the spot price itself. And let me take a minute or two to explain that because it's an important potential source of return and, and certain ETFs, certain mutual funds uh, make that a key part of their strategy is figuring out where on the curve to actually own the futures contracts. So the futures curve is not flat. So right now, you know, oil prices are around $76 a barrel. But if you go out a couple of years, you can buy an oil futures contract that's $65 or even under 60. If you go out to 2026, 2027, you can buy a barrel of oil delivered out there for something less than $60 a barrel. And so that curve, we would say, is in backwardation, which is to say that future prices are below what prices are today. Now, obviously, if the futures market is correct about where prices will be in the future, that maybe isn't really a source of return if you if you buy 70, you know, a contract trading at $70 and and it turns out to be right, then you don't make any money. That contract at expiry turns out to be $70. But there's some evidence that that the curve in futures, uh, futures markets doesn't really, uh, isn't as efficient uh, as, as it should be. And by the way, that's, that's sort of a general statement about futures and forwards in kind of all sorts of markets, uh, interest rates and equities and whatever. The forwards don't tend to be particularly good forecasts uh, of the future path. Um, but there's actually some information uh, then that is given in the shape of the curve. Again, I don't want to go deep into what the theory is. There's lots and lots of papers out there about, about how this all works. Uh, but the point is that there that one potent, that one potential source of return comes from uh, you can call it futures carry, but in general the shape of the futures curve. And by the way, for completeness, I should mention that the theory of normal backwardation, uh, which is which basically says that futures contracts in general should trade below. Uh, the expected forward price because uh, commodities producers um, want to can, can reduce their risk a lot by selling futures. And so that if you are a buyer of futures, that you should get some additional expected return for taking on that added risk uh, of, of buying in advance. So you're sort of helping out the, the corn grower who is planting a crop and wants to hedge his forward price 
And even though he thinks that that corn prices will be a dollar higher in the future, he's willing to sell them because he wants to make sure he can lock in his profit. Evidence on that is 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 a little bit sketchy. Um, I've always sort of wondered about it because obviously it's risk reducing for certain classes of buyers as well. But anyway, that's a theory of a potential source of return from investing in commodities futures. So let's let me now sort of summarize then all the different ways that you get return from investing in commodities futures or an index of commodities futures. One is you get the spot commodity return. So when oil goes up five bucks, you get the five bucks. Plus or minus the difference between spot and futures. So the the carry, if you will, over time, the the difference between how the futures behave and how the spot price behaves. And potentially there's a normal backwardation discount that you as the buyer can earn. Uh, you also get the collateral return. So in addition to whatever's happening in tin and copper and lumber, you also get whatever your, your collateral is returning. And even though right now it's returning zero if you own T-bills, um, there are times when collateral returns are much higher, and that is a source of return. And then finally, one thing I haven't mentioned is something called expectational variance. And this is actually kind of cool and useful in, in, in commodities. The term expectational variance essentially just means that spot commodity prices in the future are not likely to be exactly what we currently expect them to be. They might be higher, they might be lower, but they're very likely to be different from our expectations. Now, in standard financial theory, those deviations from our expectations are random which means the probabilities of, of potential outcomes um, are distributed according to a symmetrical bell curve with a mean equal to the expected price, two-thirds of the differences being within one standard deviation, and so on and so forth. But that's not the way it actually happens in commodities because this isn't these aren't financials. These are actual real items. And, and commodities in, in spot markets don't really behave that way. So think about, for example, a, a sudden shift in the short-term supply of gasoline uh, or energy generally. So think about an embargo. So the demand for gasoline is, in the short run, fairly inelastic. It takes a big price move before people will start carpooling. Now, in the long run, uh, it doesn't take as much a, of, of a price move. In the long run, the demand for gasoline is more elastic. People can buy smaller cars. They can carpool more often. But in the short run, the demand change for a given change in price is not large. So what happens if something suddenly affects the, the supply? If there's an embargo um, or, or somebody shuts off a pipeline or something like that? Well, what happens then is that, is that that demand now has to bid against the supply and the 
highest valued use of that gasoline wins. The person who's willing to pay the most for that last gallon of gas gets to use that gallon of gas. And what that means then is that you get these long tails to the upside when you have supply disruptions. Again, think about the embargoes of the 1970s. You know, think about the impact on lumber prices recently uh, when there was a big shortage of lumber. Um, and, and so this expectational variance effect happens because in commodities, the surprises are more likely to be supply disruptions than sudden supply excesses, bumper crops of, of gasoline that we didn't expect. Um, much more likely to be a supply disruption than a demand disruption. Now, it's sort of ironic to talk about this now because we're coming off of COVID when we did have a demand disruption uh, of epic proportions that did lead to some really bizarre things happening like spot energy prices trading negative and stuff like that. But that's obviously an extremely rare event. You know, the the chances of swine flu uh, hitting uh, uh, the the hog population in China is a much more common occurrence than COVID striking the world down and affecting uh, energy demand across uh, across the entire globe. So because of that, you get these long tails to the upside. That's the aggregate effect here. And not incidentally, uh, I am the inflation guy. I've got to mention this. Those long tails tend to be correlated with inflation because that's what inflation is. All of a sudden, you have these large increases in costs. And so that's one of the places where commodities get their, their correlation to inflation surprise. It's from these, you know, these long tails, when they happen in commodities, tend to be correlated with long tails in, uh, in uh, inflation itself. And over a longer period of time, the correlation of commodities with inflation actually doesn't come from the commodities themselves. It actually tends to come from the collateral return. Because if you, if you look at the real price of commodities over a long period of time, it actually tends to go down. You know, the price of, uh, of a barrel of, of a bushel of wheat is not dramatically different now from what it was in the 1970s. Um, and in inflation-adjusted terms, the price of almost all commodities goes down over time because we just get better at growing them or refining them or extracting them. And so most of the return to commodities indices, over a, over a short period of time, it comes from the movements in commodities. Over a long period of time, most of the return comes from collateral, from rebalancing, from backwardation, you know, futures carry, and from expectational variance. And most of the correlation between commodities and inflation uh, comes from collateral return and from that expectational variance. So it's, it's a much more complex asset class than I think a lot of people give, give credit for. Um, you, you tend to think of commodities traders as being you know, the guys in trading places, you know, going and, and screaming in the pit. And certainly they're, you know, the, the commodities futures traders are like that. But investors in commodities um, are not necessarily crazy cowboys. Over a long period of time, commodities as an asset class have had uh, 
a return similar to the long-term return of equities um, and with similar volatility to equities, but with crashes occurring on the upside rather than on the downside. And importantly, the sources of return to commodities, even though it adds up to roughly what equities do over a long period of time, the sources are totally different. There is an equity risk premium in, in equities. There's nothing similar in commodities. You know, commodities are getting a collateral return. So, so th but they happen to be very similar in terms of the risk and reward, very low correlation between them. And one of the values to an investment in commodities is that it has a much better relationship and it has a positive relationship with inflation at most time horizons whereas equities tend to not have a very good relationship with inflation over most time horizons. Well, this is, I think, my longest podcast episode yet, and, uh, and still I feel like I rushed it. Um, there's, there's so much to talk about when it comes to commodities. I am a big fan of investing in broad commodities indices, um, most of the time, certainly they can get expensive at times. They have, over the last four or five years, they've been extremely cheap um, at times as well. So, you know, it's not necessarily a slam dunk, but the same thing is true of equities. And right now they're extremely expensive, but at times they also can be cheap. And so, you know, I think that commodities belong in a portfolio in the same way that equities belong in a portfolio. Uh, I do think that Everybody thinks they sort of have an idea of how equities, you know, how to weight equities in your portfolio. Um, a lot of the uh, portfolio allocation tools that you use are sort of designed for financial assets like stocks and bonds and don't necessarily accommodate commodities very well. And as a consequence of that, I think and I have found that investors um, tend to not conceptualize very well how big their commodity alloc commodities allocation should be and how it should change over time. So I believe that commodities do, do belong in most portfolios and certainly most inflation-aware portfolios, um, but it's not really a fire-and-forget sort of solution. I wouldn't say to anybody you should have 20% and then call it a day or 40% or 10%. It's, um, it, it's likely to be a number that changes over time and people don't understand enough about how, these, how commodities work to really be smart about that. That being said, there are more and more, uh, while there aren't very many good inflation strategy, strategies out there and funds and, and, and things that you can use to directly hedge against inflation, there are starting to be better alternatives when it comes to commodity indices. It used to be you sort of owned a Goldman Sachs commodity index or the Bloomberg commodity index, and which meant you owned sort of the, the, the front month futures contract. And it just turns out that's not the smart way to do it. And so we're, there are some products out there that are, are better at doing that now. Um, but I've already gone on far too long. Like I said, um, if anything that I have said provokes a question in you that you think would make 
for another full-length episode, then then uh, please let me know. You know, you can, uh, of course, go to the Enduring Investments website and fill out our contact form. You can send me uh, an email at inflationguy at enduringinvestments.com. Uh, I am at inflation underscore guy on Twitter. Uh, there are all kinds of places to find me. And of course, you have found Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy. Defend your money. If inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy. Remember.